This week on Wealth Track, two award-winning bond managers discuss why inflation and interest rates can remain low for a very long time. What it means for investors is next on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective. Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences, and the Fairholme Foundation. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. Two of the most unusual features of this now nine-year-old economic recovery are intertwined. Historically low interest rates and persistently subdued inflation. First, the unprecedented scope of monetary easing and money creation that has taken place since the financial crisis has kept downward pressure on interest rates. Leading economic research firm Evercore ISI detailed it in a report recently headlined Money, 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 describing the explosion in money supply that has occurred over the last decade. Japan's major money supply measure, M2, is up 35 percent to $9 trillion. China's soared an astonishing 350 percent to $23 trillion. USM2 accelerated 100 percent to $14 trillion. And the Eurozone's money supply advanced 50 percent to $13 trillion. Now, cumulatively, that adds up to $59 trillion. That is more than the annual gross domestic product of all four regions combined. But what is considered to be almost as unusual is the fact that this flood of money did not spark an explosion in inflation. The dire warnings never materialized. In fact, inflation has remained remarkably subdued. It has been under the Federal Reserve's target of 2% for much of the recovery. Another surprise to many is that economic growth has been much weaker in this expansion than in prior cycles. Nominal GDP, that's with inflation included, has actually been running at levels normally found in recessions, despite all of the unprecedented central bank policies to boost activity. Now, investing during these unusual times has been challenging, but this week's bond manager guests have been successfully navigating these tricky waters. John Bellows is a portfolio manager and research analyst at Western Asset Management. Among his many responsibilities is being a member of Western Asset's Core Plus strategy team and managing the Core Plus separate accounts. Now, the Core is investment-grade corporate bonds. The Plus comes from smaller positions in other riskier assets, such as high-yield and non-U.S. and emerging market debt. The mutual fund equivalent is Western Assets Core Plus Fund, which is rated five stars by Morningstar. Stephen Smith is co-lead portfolio manager of Global Fixed Income at Brandywine Global Investment Management, which he joined in 1991 to build its bond business. He is also co-lead portfolio manager of the Leg Mason Brandywine Global Opportunities Fund, which he launched in 2006. A previous Morningstar Fixed Income Fund Manager of the Year finalist, it has a four-star rating and has a history of beating its benchmark and its world bond category peers since inception. Smith and his team invest in global bonds and currencies with a focus on government bonds known as sovereign debt. I started the conversation by asking each for their inflation outlook. It's a really important question for bond investors and for markets more generally. 
Um, start with a little bit of background. You know, inflation moved up in the United States at the end of last year. It was moving up uh, at the beginning of this year as well. And moving up um, to? You know, not a lot, but we did see inflation, CPI inflation moving up past 2%. had been below 2% and moved past 2%. Um, at the time, at the beginning of the year, you know, we were concerned that the inflation was not going to keep moving up, and we thought it would stabilize and maybe even move a little bit lower. Uh, the reason for that view is that our view is the long-term secular forces continue to be deflationary in nature, an aging population, um, a, quite a bit of overcapacity in supply chains around the world, uh, not a lot of bargaining power from U.S. workers. All those are working to keep inflation low. And so we were looking for that momentum at the, be at the beginning of this year to peter out and for a stable inflation outlook. What's actually happened is inflation's moved lower. So, you know, perhaps... And, and why? What's going on? What are the dynamics that are pushing inflation? Well, I, I, think there's, I think there's kind of two issues. I think one's a technical issue. You have seen some repricing of things like cell phone services. Um, that will move the, move the indices in potentially big ways, although it may not have a huge impact on our spending on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think the bigger issue is that we're just not seeing a lot of inflationary impulses anywhere. As I said, wages aren't moving up very fast. There's not a lot of inflation in Europe and Japan, really around the world. And without that inflationary impulse, it's really hard for U.S. inflation to move up. So, you know, as I said at the beginning of the year, we thought inflation momentum would stall and move sideways. What's actually happened is inflation's moved lower. And I think from here, we continue to be concerned about the inflation outlook and continue to be concerned about the downside risks. I think our base case outlook is that inflation can stabilize a little bit. But again, with those longer-term secular deflationary forces, we remain concerned and watchful of those downside risks to inflation. Same uh, outlook at Brandywine Global, Steve, or uh, anything I just different? The, the core CPI, which is what the Fed looks at, I mean, it's just basically, it's been under 2% since 2012. Right, below their target. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, they've never been able to get it above there, except I think for one quarter. So I just look at it is that, uh, uh, you know, we, we've had this surge of inflation because of oil, but it was more in the CPI, and that uh, inflation's under control. And uh, not just in the U.S., but basically globally, inflation just came down 50 basis points around the world. And it's because, um, as uh, you know, we just discussed, there's just not much pricing power. And right. I still don't see much pricing power. So I think inflation is just going to stay globally stuck in that maybe 1.5% range. So what does that tell us about central bank policy as far as the Fed is concerned? I mean, basically, as long as it doesn't keep going too much below 2%, right? Yeah. Do they have to do much? And, and, and especially since we're at, you know, it looks like kind of as full employment as you can get. Yeah. And that's their dual mandate. So do we need much more action from the Fed? You know, the short answer, I think, is no, is that the Fed doesn't need to be tightening policy very much in the current environment when inflation's low. In the current environment where inflation's not accelerating, that means that the Fed can stay supportive of the recovery. They can allow the unemployment rate to remain low. They can allow job growth to continue. They can allow, they can allow GDP growth to continue without being too concerned about, about tightening for inflation reasons. And what about other central banks, Steve? Well, we, we actually... This is a more uh, complicated question. Mm -hmm. So we've been thinking about the world that the world's going to maybe normalize. And so normalization... What does that mean? Well, I, I was actually thinking last year when we um, were doing our quarterly letters. Now, we've been very bearish on the U.S. dollar. And so, you know, after Trump got elected, the dollar went through the roof and commodity prices went through the roof. And we right. you know, stayed the course. We added more foreign securities. We actually added some long bonds in our portfolio. 
And so <clears throat> back in October when we wrote our quarterly letter, the, the, uh, the, the most, uh, the biggest adjective we could come up with to describe the environment was something stirring. Because if we would have said that we were going to have growth, it was like, you know, most people weren't into that camp. And then at the end of the year, we uh, came to the conclusion after Trump got elected and confidence went up that maybe we're going to have a synchronized global growth. And now we are into the idea that uh, maybe the world can normalize. So I was thinking what we're having now is that the U.S. is going to lead it. We've been raising interest rates. <clears throat> I always say you can observe a lot by observing. Right. We're raising rates. The housing market's okay. The stock market's okay. Uh, they're going to probably continue to raise rates very gradually. They're going to reduce the size of the balance sheet. And, uh, you know, Draghi basically said it. You know, by the end of the year, early next year, they're going to be in the same position as the U.S., and they'll be followed by Japan. So we're actually thinking that in, we in are, gradually withdrawing the the accommodation, yeah, withdrawing all the lowering their right, and so that would be Reason maybe a normalization. Maybe we'll I get see. a no, more normal business cycle. You know, after spending you know eight years, you know, with the central banks, you know, practicing uh, all these new uh, you know negative real rates, negative right. rates, and uh, you know, and buying all these bonds around the world. There were two great fears with this these extraordinary monetary policies that we've seen, um, that it would be inflationary and also that as, if the stimulus was withdrawn, that it would cause kind of another crisis. And, that, you know, you saw the taper tantrum. But so far we're seeing these moves, very gradual moves by the Fed, for instance, and we're really not seeing any tr tremendously negative response from the, the markets. So can they pull this off? I guess that's my question to you, John, yeah, yeah. without uh, setting off a crisis. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important perspective to, to note that the things that market participants and the Fed itself was worried about when they started this experiment have not materialized. Right. You know, and inflation is kind of the dog that didn't bark. Um, and on the financial stability risks, what we've actually seen is that credit growth has been more or less in line with GDP growth not suggesting a buildup of excesses, not suggesting a lot of vulnerabilities. And for that reason, we remain pretty sanguine about where the U.S. is. Again, inflation is a little bit lower than it probably should be, but there's no financial excesses, and we think growth can, can continue. In terms of can the Fed pull this off, I guess what I'd point to is really the context matters a lot. And, and Steve said earlier, we have seen a little bit better tone in global growth. You know, Europe's doing a little bit better. Uh, China has been a little bit better over the last few few quarters. The U.S. is perhaps a little bit better. And that context is really important. And so if the Fed and the ECB are normalizing in the context of better global growth, then that's kind of a second-order issue for, for financial markets. The first-order issue is the better global growth. Now, if the Fed and the ECB and others were normalizing in an environment of worse global growth, right. that would be a much different scenario, and that would be much more concerning. But I think in the current scenario, the context is really important, the context is positive, and it kind of means that the central banks are, are somewhat in the background rather than the foreground. So could we, in the, for the foreseeable future, Steve, could, could we actually you know, see just this you know, low inflation, low growth environment, and just continue regardless of uh, you know, what the, the traditional uh, length of a recovery is I mean you know so so we might be in the third longest recovery and then it's going to be the second and then it's the longest, but as long as we keep chugging along, uh, then in fact this could go on for quite a while. This it, environment well, is it, that it, possible? It is possible. 
Is it well, because because what's ha what's happened if you look at it from a global perspective, not a U.S. perspective, right. you know, Draghi had his expression of will. He put a stake in the ground, uh, you know, back more than five years ago, and then the Chinese got it wrong in 2015. They were, you know, monetary policy or lending was really way too tight, and so we've had three reflation trades. All three of them petered out. This one, I do believe, is actually going to play itself out, and you're mm -hmm. going to normalize. We haven't been able to do that. And, and you're and talking so, about globally, not I'm talking just about, the U.S. And, but, but the U.S. is leading it. And the thing that's been missing globally is confidence. And for whatever reason, after Donald Trump got elected, not to argue about the... Uh, right, the, the, the confidence the, the, picked up. Confidence it, picked up here, it picked up in China, it picked up globally. John. If I could just yes. come back to a point you made about the recovery. I, I think there's a mis perception out there that the length of the recovery matters. And people talk about the third largest, longest recovery, the second longest recovery, it's 90 months, it's seven years, whatever, whatever it is. There's nothing in economics that's based on time. Everything in economics is based on magnitudes. Mm -hmm. And yes, this recovery is long in months, but the growth rates have been so low that the magnitude of the recovery is actually still very, very shallow. What that means is we haven't built up any excesses. You know, if you're growing at a very low rate, there's no opportunity for businesses or, or consumers to lever up very much, to take right. on a lot, of, a lot of things that may cause problems down the road. So yes, it's long in months, but it's very, it's very short, it's very small in magnitude, and mm -hmm. in economics, the magnitude is much more important. So instead, we would look at the magnitude, which is still shallow and suggests there's a lot of room left to go in, in this recovery. You know, I was going to say I would agree with that because you know Australia is yeah, Australia's right. a quarter of a century into a you know into a recovery without a recession, and uh, I just did something for a speech where if you take the top of the cycle in 2007 to today, the U.S. GDP has grown a, a, a robust 13 percent from the top. That's 1.3 percent since 2007. Wow. Uh, you take the 1960 recovery, which was the best, GDP was up 52% over almost the same time what horizon, 4.5% growth. You can imagine what that does to tax revenues. Mm -hmm. So this has been, with all the regulation, and, you know, that's what we've been thinking about, you know, the regulation, Dodd-Frank, all of these things uh, had a, a profound impact on the economy. And I agree that, yeah, time-wise it's long, but uh, right. I, don't, I think that it can go on for another couple of years or more. From an investment point of view, if, if it's going to be low inflation, that means relative low interest rates still, where do we go for income and where are the opportunities that you're seeing, John, at Western Asset? Well, quickly, just on the, on the low inflation, yes. one implication of that. One implication, as you noted, is that does keep bond yields in a, in a low range. Right. It also means that investors are well served by having some bonds in their portfolio. Um, the reason you have bonds in your portfolio Explain is, that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> is that you know, not only do bond yields you know, stay low and so right. you earn the income on them, but if you have a low inflationary environment, that means that bonds are a very good diversifier for other risk assets. You know, the primary risk in such an environment is that growth were to falter. That would be tough for risk assets, whether that's equities or some other types of risk assets we would come back to. Mm -hmm. And in an environment where growth were to falter because inflation is low, that means bond yields are going to fall. Bond right, prices bond are going to rise, and that means they provide a good diversification. Mm -hmm. um, now, you asked a question which we, we, we get a lot and is a very important, which is where do you go for income? Yes. You know, and in the current environment with bond yields low because of the inflation outlook, you know, 10-year treasuries are not a place you would, you would normally look for income. Except they've done well on a total return basis. They have, but that's as, that's as, that's as yields have fallen. So yes. If, so if right. yields move sideways, you're getting a little bit of income, but, but you're not getting, getting a lot. 
One area that we think is is promising is some emerging markets. You know, those are places where yields are higher. Uh, central banks in a number of these markets have raised rates uh, to deal with inflation problems, to deal with weak currency problems. And they're coming out the other side of that relatively well positioned. So a place like Brazil, a place like Russia raised rates over the last few years in order to bring down inflation, stabilize their currency. And here we are a few years later, inflation is coming down, their currencies have stabilized, and yet you still get that high real rate, you still get that additional income from investing in those currencies. And, and you know that our, the, our audience out there is saying, oh great, Russia and Brazil, not. Well, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, it it strikes us as being very, you know, high risk and that's very much at the margins. That's obviously in your core plus portfolio that is at the margins. I mean, so so I think that's exactly right. So so I'd make I'd make two points there. One is it's very important to have that in a diversified portfolio. Right. And so the discussion about what's your safe asset against that is is very important when you're thinking about it's important to do correct sizing. Um, etc. But but the other thing that's important to think about is, you know, the headlines have been negative. And in some sense, that creates the opportunity. Right. You know, those particular markets, I'd include Mexico here, I'd include Indonesia, um, perhaps India. Those are places where the headlines have been relentlessly negative. Um, that's in part why those assets have underperformed. And that, in a sense, is a value opportunity. So, you know, you don't ever buy something just because the news is bad or the, the, the prices are low. But in these cases, we think the fundamentals are somewhat stronger um, than those negative headlines would suggest. And, and they'll that, make and their interest creates. payments. And that's yes. the, yeah. And, and this, of course, is your area of expertise, which is sovereign debt. Right. So what's, what's, your, what's this, your strategy at Brandywine Global? Because you're, well, you're doing sovereign debt, you're doing go- which government bonds for our right. audience, and, and you're right. doing currencies as well. Well, one of the reasons I was thinking about this whole idea of normalization was that if you just look at the world from a trying to take time in perspective, uh, you look at the, the belly of the year 2015, uh, the world growth in real terms was 1.6%, which historically was a recession. And nominal growth was uh, you know, close to 3%, which is, again, recessionary levels. Commodity prices bottomed in November of 2015. And this is why the dollar and the commodity prices have been doing a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Our theory was if the dollar went up in value, we import deflation. The emerging markets import inflation, inflation, not from anything that they're doing on their own. Uh, you know, it's the central bank here, is that uh, they're raising interest rates. And so they had this big negative feedback loop in 2014 and 2015. And now, with the dollar weakening, they got commodity prices up. They can now lower interest rates. They've been doing that now for the past, just in aggregate, the last right. year or so. And so you get a positive feedback cycle. And so I think that's where we are. And if you look at from the day versus the five or six months in 15, when world growth is 1.6, world growth is now close to 3%, it's a lot better. And if you look at the first quarter of this year, um, what we're interested in the way we're invested and how you can make money and why I think internationally, corporate profits in the U.S. were up 5.1% in the first quarter. Corporate profits in China were up 30.6%. 30.6%. Corporate profits in Europe were up, you know, almost 20%. Mm-hmm. So if you can go around the world, corporate profits in South America were up like 25%. So it's all about relative to me growth rates. The U.S. is going into the ninth year of an economic advance. The rate of change at the rate of change tends to be a lot slower. And I think the rest of the world is going to do better. FDI flows are going to go there. And I actually agree that uh, 
interest rates uh, in, in the emerging markets are all real. You can get real rates of three to five percent mm -hmm. in a developed world. Neo rates, other than probably the U.S., are all negative. Right, and, which, and would you agree with opportunities? And, you know, and that I'm not going to repeat it's that the same John was as talking that, about Brazil, I, Russia, Mexico. That's we don't own Russia, but we have five percent positions in like in Indonesia, mm -hmm. in India, in fifteen percent in Mexico, five percent in Brazil. Uh, a lot of the EMs, and I mean, we think that that's a great strategy. Right. Because that's where the growth and, is. And again, that's government debt that you're talking about. Are mm -hmm. you as well talking about, you're not talking about corporate credits, you're talking about... Well, I think, uh, I think there's opportunities both. in corporate credit as well. It's, it, right. it's, it's a different story. So the right. high real rates, that's primarily <laughs> a, a government debt story. Right. And, the, and the corporate debt, those tend to be dollar denominated, um, tend to be somewhat lower yields, but you know, in 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 some cases, there are opportunities there as well. And but but the core of your portfolio, what what would enable me as an investor to, to feel comfortable to sleep at night? What what would the core be in, in the core plus portfolio, for instance? You know, we we, we would go back to and and I, and and I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but we go back to diversification. You know, yeah. so we do have some assets like emerging markets that do have some higher volatility, but we think it's really important to have an offset government debt, U.S. government debt that provides that, that diversification. Something that's somewhat in the middle that we also have in the portfolio would be investment grade uh, corporate credit here in the United States. So, tri triple B or above. Yeah, triple uh -huh. B or above. Um, you know, we, we think the, the better tone in U.S. growth, um, perhaps a little bit of relaxing of the regulations that, that Steve was discussing uh, should be a positive there. You know, the value is a little bit, it's a little bit harder case to make that there is value. You know, spreads, so the yield advantage over treasuries right. has come way down. Um, you know, it's not the same opportunity it was last year, but that said, the story remains relatively positive. Mm -hmm. And the key is having some risk assets, but against that, having safe assets and the way those two work together in portfolios, that's what really increases the return and reduces volatility over time. Right. And, and where are the best opportunities as far as the currency investments are concerned? If you do believe we're in, you know, not the early phases, but at least the mid-cycle of an economic recovery, so the bottom in 15, you know, we're now finally people are thinking, oh, my gosh, we are actually having a recovery. Mm -hmm. So I do believe like the EM, we own long bonds there. By that, I mean anywhere from 10 to 30 year securities, whichever is the long end of, you know, like in Brazil, you can't go longer than 10 years. Mm -hmm. They're an issue of bonds longer than that. In Mexico, you can own 30 year bonds. So we have it's sort of by not sort of bimodal. There's a lot of emerging market debt in emerging markets and long bonds. In Europe, our positions are like in Sweden, Poland, Czechoslovakia, it's a peripheral and in, and in, in the UK. And the reason is just uh, just looking at Europe, I just think Poland is a poster child for this. I mean, you know, GDP, you know, they're growing at like 7%. Mm -hmm. uh, employment's growing at 4.5% a year, year over year, which would be the equivalent of us adding 600,000 jobs a month. And so you could say the same thing in, a, in various ways. They rhyme, you know, in, in a lot of the other Eastern European countries. And so when you take it in aggregate, uh, we only have uh, around slightly under, not even 15% of our money in the U.S. That's mostly on long treasuries and a few corporates because we've been paring down our corporates because spreads are, I don't know, they just don't get much narrower no. than this. Right. And so we actually have, I would say, like a bimodal portfolio. We either own long bonds or we own cash. And so a lot of the countries are where we're invested, like in Europe, it's just in short-term debt mm -hmm. because that, we don't think that there's much value in the bond markets over there. Right. If there's one investment that we should all own some of in a long-term diversified portfolio, what would you recommend? 
you know, we'd be in the emerging market space. So, um, you know, Mexico, uh, current, currently Mexico yields are around 7% on 10-year Mexico debt. That would be a position we'd have. Steve, same question. I feel, you know, our biggest position is Mexico and, uh, you know, 30-year bonds yield 7.25%. And uh, we have a big position in Brazil yielding 10.5%. And we think both of those places are fine. So we're going to leave it there. But John Bell, it's so great to have you from Western Asset thank you. Management. Thanks for joining us. And Stephen Smith, great to have you back on Wealth Track from Brandon okay. Global. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's Action Point picks up on a recommendation John Bellows made, which is to own some bonds to diversify your portfolio. Now, historically, investment-grade corporate bonds and treasury bonds have been non-correlated assets. In other words, when stocks go one way, they go the other, and they provide a counterweight to stock prices. Even with rates still near historic lows, and central banks around the world talking about raising rates, some bond ballast is still a good idea. Well, next week, we are turning our attention to companies with high growth rates. Barron Opportunity Fund's Michael Lippert joins us with his thoughts about Amazon and Tesla, among others. To see this program again and hear Bellows and Smith's concerns about bond index funds, click on the extra feature of our website, wealthtrack.com. Also, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.